I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite history and heritage professionals to get angry. The podcast where our historians deliver a massive broadside to popular misconceptions and let truth rule the waves. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here, as ever, with our very own ancient mariner, Kyle Glover. Hello. Well, this week, dear Ragers, it's about time. It's been long enough. But with all due respect to our Series 4 Rager, Charlotte White, we're going to talk about the bloody Tudors. And to take us on this voyage into disaster, we are joined by curator Hannah Matthews and lead researcher and archaeologist Alex Hildred, who join us today from the Mary Rose Museum. Ladies, welcome to History Rage. Hello. Thank you for having us. Hello. Feeling angry? Always. Getting there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine that the moment that we light that blue touch paper for you, that you'll find a new innermost rage that you never really thought you had. So before we dive into one of the biggest myths of the Tudor period, I just wonder if you'd mind giving the mutinous crowd out there a history of yourselves and how you came to be both in charge of this museum and the projects that you're both involved in. Well, I'll go first because I've been here longest. So I joined as a volunteer diver. I did archaeology at university. So I am not a historian and I hate it when people mix up the two because they're completely different. You know, I'm hands-on. Occasionally I have to delve into books, but, you know, I get really yeah. fed up when I have to Archaeologists know where history is buried, but they don't necessarily need to know what history is, do they? <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, so I joined as a volunteer diver, having done a lot of land archaeology uh, in 1979 and got asked to stay on afterwards and then just sort of stayed on. And then when the Mary Rose was lifted, so right the way through the major excavation, 79 to 82. And after she was lifted, I remained and was in charge of all the archaeology that happened afterwards. People seem to think that the, the, the archaeology of the Mary Rose stopped or diving the site stopped after that, but it didn't. We dived almost every year until 1990 and then big seasons in 2003 and five. all sorts mm. of great stuff came up. So I've been there since and I'm now head of research having been doing various things but also did a lot with creating the displays in the museum there were like three archaeologists who did the whole lot so I was one of the three yeah so you're very very much part of the part of the furniture there now isn't it they can't, they can't get rid of you if they tried could they well <laughs> sadly yes you know the 40th anniversary we had some of the 500 divers up that was last October and so it was a, a great reunion and yeah we all realized how old we were and <laughs> <laughs> and that we, we formed a legacy group so we could uh, go through all the photographs and put names to faces for the archive just in case we were too, you know, there weren't enough of us or we yeah. lost our marbles so we couldn't do it in the future. So there's a lot of looking backwards. So maybe that's a bit of history. Eh? So what made you jump from land archaeology then? Did you just think I'm just too dry? <laughs> no, land archaeology, you get really wet and you don't know you're going to get wet. At least with <laughs> underwater archaeology, you can... You can yeah for it 
So, um, no, it was, uh, I was keen on uh, snorkeling and diving, learned to dive at Sheffield University, the worst place in the world because there's no open water. <laughs> so, Stony Cove, great. Um, and, uh, and then joined the Mary Rose, having done probably 10 open water dives in October 1979, which is not a good time to start diving in the Solent. Visibility, absolutely. <laughs> so that's how I became involved and have done quite a lot of other projects other than the Mary Rose. So my vacations are, are maritime archaeology as well. So Yeah. And Hannah, how did you come to, you know, peak your career by appearing on this podcast? So I'm a relative newbie to the Mary Rose Trust. So I started here in December 2021. So I'm, yeah, especially compared to Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, my background is a bit of a mix though. So um, I started working in Heritage when I was 19 um, at Burley House up in Lincolnshire. Yes, um, I know it. I worked there in a visitor operations role as part of a really small team. I loved history. So I eventually, uh, in my early 20s, went and did my history degree. And after that, I was very fortunate to get a job the week after graduation um, at the Tower of London. And that was in an operations role. So having dreamt of being beef eater since I was a little girl, I was then sitting in the Tower of London, surrounded by all the Yemen warders and uh, yeah, living my best heritage life, basically. <laughs> yeah, without um, having to put on the ridiculous costume as well. Exactly. And the military service, which for me, I, I yeah. just not put out for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I carried on studying. So alongside work, I have always then studied. Um, I've done postgraduate study uh, in architectural history. Uh, I'm currently, well, I'm still a part-time DPhil student researching architectural history. Uh, I'm also um, an osteoarchaeologist. So I then, having done years of operations, heritage sites, uh, building conservation, project management. I then retrained as an osteoarchaeologist, um, also at Sheffield. And that led me onto a placement here at the Mayor Rose Trust in summer 2021. Uh, so I did a few months here looking at the, the human skeletal assemblage. Yeah. And just after that, the role of curator came up. Uh, so I applied, uh, went through the whole very scary interview process and feel really lucky to, to be here now as curator. Uh, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a mix of historian, archae well, osteoarchaeologist, project manager, and all of that. <laughs> and curating one of the greatest Tudor treasures that has yeah. ever been re recovered, yeah. As a lover of Tudor history, especially, and and all my all my research for my DPhil and everything is 16th century, so I couldn't be in a better place. It's it's brilliant. Well. Going from what is brilliant to what really gnaws away at your soul, then let's let's kick off with uh, with history rage. So, Hannah, Alex, I'm going to invite you with all the emotion that you feel it's necessary. What is the one thing you wish people would just stop believing? The one thing is that the Mary Rose sank on her maiden voyage, which she did not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so expand a little bit there then. So the big myth is, and it's the most common misconception we have here, and it's something everyone's dealt with for years, is that the Mary Rose was built and that she was launched and that she immediately sank. And we know that not to be true. We, we have so much evidence that show, shows she had a really long and prestigious service and... It's it's always a surprise to a lot of people that actually she served for thirty four years, so decades. Pretty pretty so much. When did she sink? She sank on the nineteenth of July, fifteen forty five, and she was built uh, in fifteen ten, or she started to be built in fifteen ten. So yeah. she she essentially served for as long as Henry the Eighth was mm. on the throne. Essentially, so there's a there's a beautiful warrant. Um, dated 29th of January 1510 and it's now in the National Archives so people can see it there and it shows the commissioning of two ships by Henry mm -hmm. VIII and these became known as the Mary Rose and the sister ship 
known as the Peter Pomegranate, which I think is a brilliant name <laughs> for a show. Uh, yes, that, that is the Boaty McBoke boat <laughs> of the Tudor period there, isn't it? <laughs> so the, these two ships, they started to be built here at Portsmouth Dockyard. So the Mary Rose now sits not far from where she was built within the dockyard from 1510 through to 1511. So we've got payments showing in July 1511, these two ships were taken up to the Thames and that's where the fitting out happened um, towards the back end of 1511. (laughs) And then the following year, 1512, Henry, by this time, he's still, I mean, he, he commissioned the Mary Rose in 1510 at the age of only 18 still, and he'd only been on the throne for 10 months or so I mean less than a year as king yeah so so this was very much the start of him building his own naval fleet um he'd inherited a a small number of ships from Henry the seventh his father but yes Mary Rose and Peter Pomegranate were the start of him building this ambitious naval fleet the second ship there being named you've got to think in in honor of Catherine of Aragon yes yeah and yeah, so in terms of this young king, newly married, um, I like to think of them as like his and hers wedding gifts almost, because <laughs> Mary Rose named for the emblem of England and the Tudor Rose, and you've got yeah. the pomegranate, which was his his new wife's emblem. So I think very sweet as a, mm. as a Yeah, because he's not at the stage yet where he is the Henry VIII that we think of, is it? And I think he's we're going to come to that a, a little bit later. We will, yes. So as we said there, we've got we've got this maiden voyage, maiden voyage myth. But as you say, how the hell could it be a maiden voyage if she sank 30 <laughs> years after floating? So in between that building, fitting out, launching, and then sinking 30 years later within sight of home, what, what sort of service did she see? What sort of career did she have over those 30 years? She had quite a varied career. So having been completed by the end of 1511, it was then only in April 1512 that uh, the Mary Rose alongside, uh, I think there were 17 ships in all, this this fleet of Henry VIII's um, heading out to battle. So the king, come April 1512, is engaging in his first fight against the French, uh, one of a few <laughs> during his reign. It is an English tradition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why break with tradition? Uh, so the, this battle, uh, the Battle of San Man... Sorry. <laughs> the Battle of San Mathieu uh, is happening and the Mary Rose is is a key part of that. She's she's one of the biggest ships there. She's the, the biggest ship that Henry mm-hmm. VIII has commissioned and had built at that time. And her her service starts off with this this big battle. Um, it was a bit of a disastrous battle in that the largest ship of that fleet, um, which was a ship called the Regent that had belonged to Henry VII, the Regent and one of the French ships both sank during that particular battle. So not the Mary right. Rose. She was still sailing quite happily. But it's very much that being the Mary Rose's first battle does reflect her own end 34 years later in in the battle of the Solent where she does unfortunately sink um but during those 34 years she's engaged in some active service um the field of cloth of gold as well when that happens uh, in the 1520s she's part of um the escort out to France for for that um incredible event to happen there are years where she's not in active service, so we've got a lot of accounts of mothballing, repairs, uh, the ship being in dry dock. Those periods do definitely reflect Henry VIII's financial status and yeah. what else is going on at the time. So in the 1520s, there's definitely more of a focus on his marital <laughs> issues yeah. and complications and political, uh, all, all of that that's going on. But in the 1530s, there's a there's a big regeneration of, of the naval fleet um, and there's a period of, of refitting, redesigning, essentially, of a lot of his ships. Yeah. Probably because the Spanish are getting quite shirty at that time, I imagine, yeah. aren't they? I think following the break with Rome and the European threat that's coming Henry's way, he's, he's very much getting ready. Um, and also with a lot of 
a lot of new money that's come in from the dissolution of the monasteries. So once again, yeah. the the crown treasury and the crown purse has got money to spend on these uh, refits and redesigns. So yes, we, we've got all these records of of her inactivity and then not inactivity, but she's very much still there and able to be sailed yeah. if need be. Um, and then it's not until the Battle of the Sovent in 1545 uh, where she does she does meet her end and, and sink. Uh, so yeah, a good few decades of, of life. <laughs> so to briefly... I, I can. I remember that the Battle of the Solent happens because the Mary Rose sinks there, which is somehow important. I don't know. No doubt you're going to tell me just how important that is. But we, you know, what is the Battle of the Solent about? What? Who are we fighting against? Why? You know, is it is it defence against an invasion? Are we just going to sink the French because we enjoy doing it? We're, what's the background to that battle? The siege of Boulogne the year before, where Henry uh, goes across the channel and g- goes to Boulogne and retakes it, if you like, because Boulogne mm. was always one of our province, one of our towns in France, if you like. So in September or August 1544, uh, he lays siege to it and gets it back. And this is the French retaliation. And of course, there were spies all over. I mean, English spies were in France. French spies were in England. They all knew what each other were doing. And in by by June. 1545, the French fleet was was all getting together uh, to, to come to England, and Henry knew that. And so he brought land forces to England uh, and also brought all of his ve- vessels into Portsmouth because he knew that that was the easiest place for them to uh, to attempt to invade from because they, they could then, getting the major naval base, which is what Portsmouth was, they yeah. could then march on London. And so he assembled his fleet here, and that's when the Battle of the Solent began. Larger than the Spanish Armada. So the French was larger than the Spanish Armada. So we all remember. That's another thing that we hate. Everybody thinks the Spanish Armada was the biggest invasion, and it wasn't. The French attempt on on invading England um, was actually much bigger. Yeah, we, do you know we may actually come back to you for a rage on the Spanish Armada <laughs> for a future episode if, you, if you'd be up for that. Um, am, I, am I right in thinking that during the battle the French actually invade the Isle of Wight? They actually invade part of England. They did, yeah. Technically, there was a land invasion, and I believe there's a small uh, plaque or monument uh, on the Isle of Wight where it says about the French coming coming on land, and and actually their invasion was successful in a way uh, in terms of Isle of Wight <laughs> except for they then realized that they were on an island that, that uh, had got 6,000 English troops that had been put on especially because Henry being very sort of sensible about this or his advisors telling him had uh, got people on there just in case this was to happen and of course it was coming up towards you know the end of August and the idea of them being there for a winter I mean like like the English the year before in Boulogne, they were going to, um, you know, try and starve people out, which is what what the English did to the French in Boulogne the year before. Well, the English were going to do the same thing. There were too many people. And in fact, there were a number of skirmishes on the Isle of Wight that the the French, I mean, they did some burning and some looting, but then the English chased them off and there were a few few small um, episodes of fighting then. But by the 23rd, uh, of of uh, July, the French decided it was sensible to withdraw. So they took their fleets mm-hmm. off uh, out of the Isle of Wight. They took the, the people they'd landed, um, which of course is, is quite difficult to land. You'd have to get a small boat to land your your, yeah. your food. You know, a really difficult thing to try and and feed those people. So and then they they only spent another couple of days in the Solent and then disappeared off and then finally by the end of august they they'd got plague amongst their ships and they disappeared back to france having sunk the mary rosa yes having having done the damage or having witnessed the sinking because that's another another mythical company another okay we'll, we'll come on to that later kyle make a mental note okay so the big myth as we've discussed is that sinking on the maiden voyage. Um, but what are some of the other myths you can tell us about the Mary Rose? Where do I start? <laughs> Loads of them. Um, the fact that that for years, and even still now, when we have a whole load of information in the museum, we've got books out, including a new one that, that we just um, put on the market in October to celebrate our 40th anniversary. 
that that this bloke called Roger Grenville, we have the name, two named people, Roger Grenville and Sir George Carew. We have an operations list for July 1545, which lists Sir George Carew as captain and 500 men on board uh, and, and the name of the Mary Rose. Yet, because there was a mistake very early on where we have two named people, one is Sir George Carew, one is Roger Grenville. Grenville being a really good family down in the West Country, um, sort of put it round that he was the one who was captain, and that still stands today. You know, 40 years after the Mary Rose was raised, 40 years, 38 years after we got the first museum done, and the, the various the four chronicles which talk about it, and you still get, if you look at, at um, things like Wikipedia, and you can still see them saying that, that Roger Grenville is the captain of the Mary Rose, where he wasn't. So those two people were the only, sadly, the only named people we've got for crew. We don't have a crew mm-hmm. list. But that's really, really annoying because we know it's not true. Um, and there are no really uh, academic annoyance there as well. Is. That's, I bet your visitors are just God will she shut up about the captain? Well, they it? do. We still get people writing in and said I'm related to the, the captain of the Mary Rose, Roger Grenville. And you can imagine what I say back. There are also other things that suggest that Sir George Carew, because we don't have a potted history of all of these. We, of, of these people in, in Tudor times that he hadn't got much experience before because only the day before he'd been uh, promoted to vice admiral. Now that means he was sort of second in command. Well, all of the vice admiral, you've got vice admirals on a number of the ships, but he was mm-hmm. only promoted to that position the day before. So you then get people saying, oh, well, you know, we don't know much about his history. He was only promoted, so he was useless and it must be his fault. And there is, again, there is evidence to say, this, this, unfortunately, this is historical evidence, which really hurts me rather than the archaeology, archaeological element. <laughs> it really hurts me because the archaeology evidence, we can't, we haven't got the bodies of either Carew or Grenville because we know their ages and the, our body isn't old enough to be, the bodies aren't old enough to be either of those two. But, uh, you know, it really grieves me that we still get this this problem with people thinking that it's it's Sir George Carew, um, it's Roger Grenville rather than Sir George Carew. The the fact of who was in charge, they also plays into the myths of the sinking. So, as Alex yeah. has said, in terms of who was in charge and did that have an impact on why she then sank, not on her maiden voyage, but during this battle. Yeah, the the myth of was the captain was Caru not in control of of his men on board, um, or was it his potential or supposed inexperience that that led to this? But he disaster? was experienced because he'd he'd mm. fought he'd fought with the admiral of the fleet uh, before you know ten years before. So that's potentially he'd although the fleet wasn't active in active fighting mode for those that ten years, he had got experience in in crewing a ship and and working with the admiral before which is probably why he promoted him to vice admiral you, you wouldn't do that there were plenty of people to yeah. choose from so that's that's one of the things which is is really annoying we think he's experienced and that's probably because there's just this one again historical phrase that you've got um sir peter carew which is the the brother of sir george carew or, or is it, maybe he's the uncle cousin. coming alongside or cousin <laughs> coming alongside and and saying what's wrong he can see that there's something wrong with the you know the the sailing of the mary rose and he and sir george carew is reported to have said i have the sort of knaves i cannot rule which has then been taken to mean that he doesn't think any of his crew are any good so you then get this thing is it the captain is it the crew are either of them inept um and then a few other things like could could the crew have been foreign because some of the, the work that we've done been done with mm-hmm. isotope analysis and some of the work that was done um, in 2015 looking at the isotope analysis and teeth has suggested that some of the crew might be foreign and a Spanish ship um, was uh, captured in off Falmouth and the crew was then absorbed as as quite often happens the crew is either that it, they say, do, do you want to be absorbed into the Royal Navy? It's not as though they're, they're knocking them on the head and dragging them in. But in, in many cases, mm. they're going to get fed, they're going to get watered. And so you do get these foreign crews, and we know that. But, um, the, you know, that perhaps on the day, all of the crew couldn't understand English and, and things like that. So that's another uh, myth that, that you can't answer or not. But, you know, you've got to have enough people there who will be able to say, translate, close the 
bloody gum ports if, if you need to do that. Um, so then you've got the other thing that says it's overmanned. And these people need to make up their minds, don't they? They I do. Mean, there's I more. Know. There's a lot more. <laughs> you know, there's supposed to be 500 people. That's what the list says for. And it, we know that 415 of them are divided between soldiers, mariners, or mariners and gunners. So the rest of them are going to be your officers and the servants and whatever for the officers. Mm. So that makes absolute sense. And you, you know, get the, the food, food list for the for the cook for 500 there ain't going to be any more are they you know that is pretty good evidence so um so that's another you know myth that, that there are too many people and that's why they all ran over to one side of the ship to wave at the king and the ship went over that's yeah. one of my favorite <laughs> um i have to say and i'm sorry for my language here ladies but bollocks it is true the king was at south sea castle so in in this whole disaster that was happening, he was very much there at South Sea, watching his fleet, watching in the hope of, of this great victory over the, the invading French. But unfortunately, on the 19th of July, seeing his... his I mean, the Mary Rose was meant to be one of his favourite ships, so seeing his favourite ship sinking uh, not more than a mile out uh, from the coast um, and, and witnessing it all, but... Yeah, the the theory of the crew all rushing over to Well, it's a mile and a half. Him. You know, it's, it's <laughs> a mile and a half. They're really going to be able to see Henry on a horse behind South Sea Castle. No. And, and you're in the middle of a battle. And you're just going to stop to give a royal wave. <laughs> yeah, they've got something to do. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, the one I I picked out from your uh, from your website that you when you sent me the link through that I just took a step back and went, "What was?" Well, I'm just going to come out and say it: iceberg in the Solent. The iceberg, yeah. <laughs> it was July, of course. Sorry, it was July. Why not an iceberg? You know, <laughs> naturally, yes. I think this is where we get mixed up with, say, in terms of the maiden voyage myth. There's obviously the Vasa uh, in Sweden, which uh, that ship did sink on its maiden voyage. Um, but yes, the iceberg, I think, is definitely tapping into the uh, Titanic, mistaking us for, for the Titanic, I suppose. But we're definitely not not that. <laughs> so gun ports being too low, that's another one. They're not. You know, we've got the freeboard that one would expect. We've got lids for the gun ports. OK, they were both they were open on both both sides and that's where the archaeology proves it because we found on the starboard side which was the one facing henry the eighth which is the, the side that the mary rose landed on when she heeled over and sank and this is not a deep sea episode this isn't a titanic episode she is 14 feet wide the depth to the seabed or 12 to 14 feet wide depending on where you are on the ship and the depth to the seabed is 10 to 12 meters depending on so she's 12 meters wide and the depth to the seabed is the same thing so basically she just rolled over so this whole thing about sinking into the murky depths of the solent again that's the b word you know yeah <laughs> okay do you feel better for that ladies <laughs> yeah yeah thank you Spanish <laughs> fire we can't tell because we're oh, missing yeah. bits of the bow and bits of the stern but we have recreated some of the guns and recreated the the battlefield if you like using uh, digital terrain modeling and made replicas of the two types of gun and we know that 
it is possible from where we we know the position of the Mary Rose, we know where key points are on the land around because they're still there, the Square Tower, the Round Tower, South Sea Castle, things on the Isle of Wight. So we can roughly work out where the various prime ships were and where the French galleys, which were the ones that were during the morning of the 19th of July, there was no wind. So the English were sitting guarding the front of, of, of the channel into Portsmouth Harbour, basically Harbour Mouth, guarding it against the French getting in. And their galleys, the road galleys, because their fleet had, had some of the galleys from, from Italy there, or the, the Venetian galleys, could take pot shots at the, at the uh, English. So, you know, it's entirely possible with the position of those galleys on an engraving which was done at the time, that we luckily have, um, that, that she was within range. And we proved that by doing the guns. So this idea of French gunfire is possible, um, but not but we don't have enough of the ship to be said. And and we did have the ship looked at by a professional who looked at who who was from Fort Halstead in Kent, whose specific job was to look for battle damage on, on ships and couldn't find any. But, you know, you do have to say, well, the bow castle's missing and, you know, lots of the stern castle mm. is missing as well. That So, you know, we can't be certain about that one. A gust of wind is another one. And sometimes there's a northerly wind in the summer, uh, in the it, early evening, which is when she's sort of late afternoon or early evening. But that would probably only have exa- exacerbated something. Yeah. And I suppose going back to your gun ports are too low thing, you know, we accept they're not. And if they were, you would have found out about this sometime early on in Korea, not after yeah. 34 years in the middle of the battle. Well, there well, is some possibility that some of the gun ports, some of the lidded gun ports weren't put in until uh, a massive change in the weaponry that happened in the late 1530s, early 1540s, where you get a whole redeployment of arms. And so that it's really difficult. Unfortunately, the dendrochronology, um, we haven't got the right amount of wood of the gun port sills to be able to get a good enough um, core sample to be able to give you the heartwood-sapwood boundary, which is what you need to to work it out so we've tried but can't can't do that but um certainly some of the gun ports were there early on and and the freeboard is is enough we know where that is on the ship so thank you so so we have a wreck and not an and not an iceberg in sight what can you tell us then about the attempts to recover the mary rose both the initial ones leading up to your successful one well it's estimated that, that the 1,723 pounds in 1545 of weaponry, just weaponry on board, would be worth two million today. So it was in Henry's interest to really try and raise it. And considering she's literally only just rolled over, you know, it wasn't a big thing. And wrecks had been lifted before and there was a known method of doing it. So immediately lists were made of what would be necessary to upright her, which is called weigh her. And... But it's interesting that even right at the beginning, the people who were brought in were Venetian carpenters and and uh, Venetian carpenter and Venetian mar- mariners. So they were very they were using a lot of, of um, Italians in order to to help do this. So you've got a list of what's necessary to lift it. So this is this is big ropes, um, big uh, hawsers, um, cables, winches. Boats on either mm-hmm. side, so you'd have four vessels, one one on the bow, one on the stern, one each side, and then the idea would be to get ropes tied to the tied to the masts, so that you could then winch them in um, and pull it upright, and then put uh, ropes underneath the ship in order to lift it on a tidal lift with the vessels on either side, and then gradually take her into Portsmouth Harbour. And so that that started almost immediately. So um, by by the 24th of July, the French had left the Solent. Um, by the 1st of August, the plans to recover her were in place. And, and um, by the 31st, you've got um, absolute lists. By the 2nd, you've got the sails and the yards and anything that would be in the way of getting ropes to, to tie on the masts already taken off and put ashore so they're working really quite quite quickly and it's going fairly well and there's all this to and from reporting to the king so the king is taking a real active interest in what's happening and you know the idea and it's actually some of it is coming from his personal um, account or his a special account that he had for playing with his ships and building up his navy and um, yeah, yeah these huge captains and by the second of uh, by the 5th of August you've got cables tied to the masts. And then things start to to go pear shaped. 
Uh, by the ninth, the Italians, and this is blamed, the Italians have broken her foremast. Let's blame the, the Italians, but they were, they were working on it. Italians. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and with that, um, they then try again on the ninth, and they decide that they've broken the foremast and they're, they're going to change the method of doing it and uh, pull her into shallow water and then try and turn her upright. And this is where we wonder whether they've actually broken the ship in two because we've got the bow is missing from the Mary Rose. And, and that's just uh, stopped. But what the interesting thing is the payments continue to, again, Italians, but it's a sa different salvage company, so it's a different group of Italians, just to bring up um, weapons. So, so money is paid for raising guns and raising anchors from the Mary Rose. And within that team, we know that we've got the names of some of the people. And one of them is um, a diver from Isla de Guinea, which is basically West Africa. And he is called to um, the court of the high admiralty to defend the person who has hired him and another four people who were probably African of African descent as well because of their names, John Black, for example, you know, that's a bit of a giveaway. Um, and uh, he's giving evidence to support his, the person who's, who's hired him in the high court of the Admiralty. And he talks about uh, his method of working and what they, what they've done. So, you know, that's a really nice story that we're getting the names of the first few yeah. divers who dived on the Mary Rose and the fact that, that they, they're, you know, obviously an international group that are on board uh, the, the Mary Rose anyway, in different ways. So, and we're proving that now with doing archaeological work on, on some of the skeletal remains. So that's basically left because they've probably broken. I mean, it doesn't say they've broken this, they've torn the front off the ship, but you know, we don't have the front of the ship. So that's, that's a, a possibility. So um, that's, Basically, that it's then left for several hundred years until in 1836, fishermen caught their nets on an obstruction and you get the pioneer diver John Dean diving on the Mary Rose, finding a gun and realizing or on this obstruction, seeing a piece of wood, digging around to see what he can find. He finds a gun which could only have come from the Mary Rose. And then he works it for four years and then leaves it because he thinks that he's got right the way through into the hold of the ship. And so the last thing he does is put put mortar bombs with gunpowder in it, bury six of them and blow holes into the seabed and sell what's left. And part of why he, he's doing that, he put the mortar bombs, is he was running over the four years. He was running out of things that were visible on the seabed. And it's a bit difficult to start with it. And he does go down with a pickaxe and shovel and try and dig for it. But um, he's finding these iron guns. And because the historical idea was that you have a progression of these barrel types of wrought iron guns to those wonderful bronze guns, you'd never have the lot together. And it's these rude pieces of early ordnance would never be on, on a ship that has these fine bronze guns. And that was published in the 1830s. And so he thinks he's in the hold of the ship with nothing there. But actually, the guns he's finding are from the port side main gun deck. And you've got six meters of the whole of the starboard side gun deck and then another deck below and then the hold of the ship buried below and again it's because of this misconception of the artillery that he's he leaves it because he thinks he's into the hold he's pulled up the end of the main mast and thinks he's in the hold of the ship so the ship and the guns are actually quite interesting okay and then it restarts again i believe there's it's in the 60s and then then your souls in the 70s that, yep. that finally i would say finally pull the whole ship up but finally pull the whole ship apart from the bow up yeah. And then in the 2000s, um, so we monitored the site regularly between um, 1982 and 2002 when um, we heard that the MOD were going to dig a new channel into Portsmouth Harbour for the Queen Elizabeth and and for the, um, the, the two new aircraft carriers. And uh, we said, no, you can't do that because actually it's a historic wreck and that area of the seabed is absolutely no go. Um, and if you do... Uh, and also, we haven't got a bow in case you hadn't noticed. So where is it? You know, we'd never found it. We didn't have time to do it. We cut, in fact, chainsawed sawed off part of the bow where it began to, where the timbers began to break from the main hull. And that's, again, we, we don't know why, but it, this could have been this attempt to, to salvage it in Tudor times. Um, 
And in order to the method of lifting that that we were using, which was putting wires through the ship and lifting on the wires, you couldn't have wiggly bits at the end. So those were sawn off and left. But we'd never had time and we weren't actively excavating between um, 82 and 2002. What we were doing was looking at the hull hole and seeing whether anything was falling out of the edges because you get complete tidal actions. They go across the, across the ship and that eats away at the sides of it. And you, we found sometimes you get complete sets of rigging that were exposed on the starboard side hull and we'd lift that separately or guns or whatever else. But we weren't actively airlifting to to dig down so we got the money from the mod to doing that and, and in doing that we found the stem timber of the ship which now gives us the full length of the ship and the curve of the ship and the ship's emblem which is a tudor rose a carved tudor, tudor rose so really good stuff and in the end the the channel was given up because it was too expensive but that's a bit of a sad story so that really annoys me because if they were to go ahead and do it they would have had to pay for us to completely excavate the footprint until we had no tudor sediments left within the mary rose and we would have found far more but we're still looking for the bow castle there's and more the, yeah there's more <laughs> okay well while we're on the subject of the wreck uh, which my when when my good late mother-in-law bless her when went to see the mary rose wreck uh, she summed it up with a lot of wet timber <laughs> she hasn't been back to the new museum it's uh, not. she's no longer with us uh, i'm afraid oh. now but this leads us neatly into uh, kyle's next question then now, one of the things that really struck me when i visited the mary rose museum is about how much the museum is not so much about the ship itself which is very pretty and really important but more about the crew and the people on board so what can the wreck of the mary rose tell us about its crew uh, the Tudor Navy and Tudor society as a whole. I think it's really important to remember that, yes, we have the surviving wreck, um, which is at the heart of the museum. You you can now be in the same environment as, as the ship. She's she's had a period of, well, she had a long period of uh, the um, wet conservation and the, uh, the polyethylene glycol that was used to treat it so that the wood wouldn't degrade um, any further uh, there's been a, a period of drying now and where the ship hall is visitors can go into that ship hall um, and be there alongside the, the wreck of the Mary Rose um, so you, the the wreck itself is very much at the heart of the museum at the heart of the Mary Rose was very much the crew on board um, and when when the ship sank uh, everything on board went down with her so objects um unfortunately majority of the crew uh, did not escape um and we very much want to tell their story as as part of that museum experience so we've got thousands of objects i think there's about 19,000 objects recovered that range from guns which alex has mentioned uh tools so carpentry tools barber surgeon kits and equipment um, and then also a lot of personal items so objects very personal to to these individuals that were serving on board at the time and it's it's a complete snapshot it's it's so rare to have I mean we we have that date the 19th of July 1545 Mm -hmm. and that moment in time we have the people that were on board and the objects um, and beautifully preserved for 437 years <laughs> before uh, being excavated and raised in the 20th century. And it's a real insight into not only the Tudor Navy, but Tudor life. So a lot of these objects just don't survive. There's uh, knit combs, for example, which uh, we've got an exam- we've got examples 82. of 82 <laughs> knit combs, which uh, are part of everyday Tudor life, not just for the, the Navy, but people living at that time um, all, all over the place would have would have had those items. And clothing, uh, food, we can see what they were eating on board. So a mixture of, uh, we've got animal bones, we can see the butchery uh, marks on those bones. We've got fish bones, we've got uh, spices and, and things from all, all over Pepper the globe. hidden in people's pockets yeah so it's a real it tells that global story as well it's it's not only Tudor England at the time it's it's that global um it's the Tudor world it is yeah very much so 
Uh, and for, for us to have all of that and to be able to study that and also, most importantly, to, to show people that. So coming to the museum, you can see about a thousand objects on display alongside the wreck. Uh, and then really importantly, the, the crew themselves. So coming from an osteoarchaeologist uh, background, the skeletal remains of those individuals, they're, they're such an incredible uh, resource essentially and, and such a privileged opportunity to be able to work with those human remains to study to find out more about the individuals themselves but also what that can tell us about people at the time uh, so we can we can see basic uh, information such as age at death biological sex uh, the height of these individuals on board uh, whether there were any uh, visible pathologies so uh, what diseases and ailments they might have been suffering from war wounds war wounds <laughs> yes mm -hmm. uh, and then also more detailed research so over the years the Marymose Trust uh, partner with with universities um, have done a lot of detailed research so there's been some isotope analysis uh, also some DNA analysis so we're looking at where people who were on board would have grown up during childhood and seeing these these chemical signatures within their teeth uh, to to indicate where they would have uh, spent their childhood um, and also ancestry as well. So you, from that, uh, really seeing this this international this this diversity on board mm. um, that a lot of people are quite surprised about. They they think of Tudor England as as not having that diversity, but from this one ship alone, we we can show that the the crew was certainly diverse. Also, some pretty weird dental anomalies. Some of the teeth are just unbelievable. I love the teeth. <laughs> you know, they literally go out at 90 degrees from the, from the mouth. Yeah. We, I mean, we've got 179 skulls. So, you know, and we've recreated the faces on, on eight or nine of them now. Um, and, you know, just think of what you could do. You could be looking into the faces of 179 tutors, all died at one particular moment in time. Now, that's something that, you know, Maybe it's really the wrong thing to say, but could we crowdsource for funding the reconstructions of these faces? And then you'd really be looking into the face of the Mary Rose crew, the faces, the many faces, of, really. Well, there you go, History Ragers. Once you finish subscribing to us, the Mary yeah. Rose needs your money to crowdfund <laughs> skull recreation. Well, when I, like no doubt many others out there, think of Henry VIII, you know, I generally think of gout, ulcerated sores, and some very, very questionable marriage guidance needs. But in terms of Britannia ruling the waves, and the fact that he has given us the Royal Navy, should we be having some positive thoughts about Ron, uh, about Henry VIII? I, I think so. I know Henry VIII has a bad reputation, which I think is rightly deserved. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I'm not arguing. Catherine that. Howard's family would agree. <laughs> yes. Absolutely, and and I think I think the the infamous image, the the Hans Holbein portrait of him in later life, is incredibly overweight, and as you say, the the ulcerated sores, all all of that uh, nastiness that that comes with him. Um, but I certainly think he had a life of extremes. So going back to when he first became king, as this this young eighteen year old coming to the throne as king of england and he was tall and athletic and he enjoyed music and entertainment and tournaments and he was a real party king essentially it was um, almost the prince harry of his day really yeah. wasn't it <laughs> could be yeah and and also i do think that there's evidence that he was quite a romantic i would argue in terms of we we spoke briefly about the naming of these two ships that he commissioned at the very start of his reign, the Mary Rose and the Peter Pomegranate, very much highlighting his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. There's also some some beautiful uh, tournament armour uh, that's in the line of kings at the Tower of London, which has the, the initials H and K uh, as decoration around this armour. Uh, so when he would have been jousting in tournaments that was there for everybody to see his his love and devotion to Catherine of Aragon 
Um, and he he was married to his first wife for I think twenty three years. Mm. Um, and the the final five wives were within the last sort of fifteen years or so of his his life. Yeah, he did want a son. He did. No, he did. He got I think... one. <laughs> and and a, a legitimate one as well. Yeah, but that one died, and then he had. A... I was I was going to say also when it comes to wife number two um within his architecture you've you've still got today you can go and visit Hampton Court Palace and you can see the initials H and A so he's he's moved on at that point from H and K but you've got H and A within some of the the decorative stonework and the wooden paneling within the great hall um and you've got her emblem so yeah there, there's a huge difference between the start of his reign and the the end of his reign um and you could have a whole other episode on on the reasons why that that change occurred um jousting accident in 1536 yeah. that's one of the one, one of the reasons yeah yeah the beginning of the end isn't it also uh yeah as you said the the royal navy yeah well i mean so in 1510 he had five ships and one dockyard um by the time uh, he dies in 1547 there are three fully functioning dockyards He's he's built Trinity House, which is still the thing that maintains channels and navigational buoys today. He built an armory, Greenwich Armory. He built that in 1511. So the armor, the the armor that uh, Hannah was talking about, is actually the first armor that, out of that that we can be absolutely sure is from that. He headhunted the best um, gun founders from Europe and encouraged them to come and set up foundries in England so he could, instead of having to buy the copper from the continent or the bronze guns, which he did at the beginning of his reign, he set up a whole industry of that. He was then pretty keen on, he was very keen on all sorts of weaponry and followed that through. You can see that through his entire reign where he's taking an interest in guns. And um, so he set up these foundries. He encourages that. He builds up the ships from five to when when he dies, he's got 58 vessels, 20 great ships. So having had, you know, five, only two of which are big, the regent and the sovereign, when he inherited it, um, by the time he dies, there are 20 great ships and a, and a fleet of 58. Um, and he he does things like that I like is um, he preserves things like the use of the longbow, um, which... Mm-hmm. You know, means that we've got these 179 complete longbows out of the 250 listed. And all in all, I think, you know, the, the Royal Navy, the, the institutions, the establishment, he's got five full officers in a working admiralty, whereas when he first came to the throne, there was only one officer. Um, and by the time he leaves, it is the, the foundation of the Navy as we know it today. I think also the fact that the Mary Rose is still here at Portsmouth Dockyard mm. and uh, having been built here, having sunk just off the the coast um, or just outside Portsmouth Harbour, and the fact she was brought back to the dockyard in 1982, uh, so 40 years ago, uh, when she mm. was was brought back here to the dockyard, um, so yeah, very mm. very much Henry VIII's ship, but also Portsmouth ship. She's mm. she's really at, at the heart of this this city um, and mm. of this coastal history and of, of the dockyard history. He also did a lot with the fortifications. So mm. uh, against this French invasion, he not only rebuilt or refortified things, and you can go from Pendennis in Cornwall right the way up to Berwick and Berwick and Tweed, and in particular the device forces around here, uh, forts around here, mm. which was sort in of the, the fifty nine, uh, fifteen thirty eight, thirty nine, um, and the South Sea Castle is one of those, and you know that still stands today. Not quite the same as it was then but you know there are elements and we certainly have the square tower and the round tower which are both both you know from from the 15th and 16th century so he did an awful lot for um castles and fortifications around the coast um, as well as mapping the coast and again this was because he was worried about the french invasion he he mapped the coast so like the Spanish Armada, where you've got these these uh, lights that go across, you know, the, the fires on the baskets, that those were there for the Battle of the Solent as well. In in places, you can see them within this engraving that we that we have. Um, so, you know, he was either he was farsighted or his advisors were farsighted, and they ignited the interest that he had in, you know, playing with ships and playing with guns and um, and being a Renaissance prince and beating the hell out of the French, which. <laughs> 
So to start to wrap things up a little bit, um, what are the plans for the exhibition in future and how are, is the Mary Rose being used to advance our knowledge of Tudor history? So we have a very exciting future. Uh, we, we have this incredible museum that will be 10 years old uh, in 2023. Uh, we also, in 2023, uh, have a brand new, it's going to be a 4D immersive dive experience so visitors will be able to come and enjoy the museum and at the end be able to, to dive the Mary Rose virtually. Uh, so we are in the process of, of building this theatre uh, which we will be launching in spring 2023 and it's a 4D experience so you'll be uh, virtually diving down to the, the Mary Rose wreck site seeing the wreck uh, and the excavations that are happening in the the seventies and through to the early eighties, and you'll have this three D element to that. But also, we've got uh, rumbling seats. You'll be able to to feel the sensations. Uh, we've got uh, wind machines, so you have the, the the breeze in your hair as you you head out to the wreck site at the beginning. Uh, it's it's going to be fantastic. It's it's really going to bring to life that dive experience that that so many like Alex <laughs> um had at the time that that we'll never be able to to experience in real life but to have this brilliant immersive theatre um is is a fantastic opportunity and we hope everyone enjoys it and it goes right the way through to the lift as well so we don't address that very thoroughly elsewhere in the museum so you're invited to be part of the team that tunnel under the ship to put the lifting bolts and it goes through the whole lifting sequence and shows how that's done in a in, you know a very effective way so so much as we've seen but we also have a few things that are all here and maybe going on so as i said we we haven't got the bow of the mary rose and there's not so much of the stern so with um, the university of portsmouth the extended reality um new uh department there we've got a number of impressions where you go you have uh, the scanned image of the wreck as it is on the seabed. So we populated it with fish and tides and bubbles and whatever, and divers working on it. And you can actually have an immersive dive through it. And then gradually, and these, these are installed in the museum at the moment, and we hope to be able to have the funds to make them stay. So you've got um, that sort of experience, which you can then, with your hands, move through the wreck. And it starts as a wreck, and you can rebuild the whole ship and then see what the ship would have looked like. So we're getting over this the thing that people say, oh, it's a load of driftwood. Where's the bow? Where's the stern? You know, where is the other half of the ship? And we're being able to now do that virtually with with, um, with the virtual reality um, element. We've got a spinny fan, which is like a holograph. The holofan. A holofan, which again starts as a wreck and then becomes a complete ship. And that's right opposite in this open gallery that Hannah's just discovered or discussed right above the ship so you can see the two and then we've got which we haven't put in yet and we will do now so this is a future thing for you we've got a headset tour with with wearing the um headset that actually also takes you through the the ship and it then builds up in front of you as well so a number of different exciting things for the future some of which are installed now and that new 4d experience that you mentioned that goes live in easter 2023 doesn't it so it does, yeah. so for listen, listeners out there if you're a patreon subscriber wait a month and get the hell down and if you're listening to this on general release then uh, it's been open for a uh, for about six weeks so uh, do give it a visit well thank you thank you very much ladies because that, that is one myth I've wanted to get in the bin for quite some time. And it turns out there's a whole load of other myths that you wanted to get in the bin um, as well. But thank you very much. Do you feel better? We yeah. do, yes. Thank you. We really appreciate Good. it. So you'll like this. Some of the objects, the archaeological objects, are 65, of the, and this is the closest dated assemblage of Balak knives. Now, that's the Victorian. Oh, they're actually Who doesn't like a Balak knife? Balak knives. Yeah. So there you go. We started with bollocks and we'll end with bollocks. <laughs> and our entire podcast is just bollocks, yes. Well, thank you very much, ladies. And uh, guys out there, if you'd like to know more, then you can and should visit the Mary Rose Museum, which is located within Portsmouth Historic Dockyard. And not just visit, you should make this a pilgrimage. Not just if you're interested in Tudor or if you're interested in maritime, just if you're interested in history, because even going away from the maritime, this, as we say, it's it's the Tudor world. 
So you can visit the museum and you can visit their website at www.maryrose.org and you can follow the museum on Twitter at Mary Rose Museum. Uh, but once again, Alex, Hannah, thank you very much for uh, refloating your rage. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I am at Kyle G History. And we'd love you to join the Angry Mob on Patreon because this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our prize draws, the invites to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.